Thank you all for braving the weather this morning. Um, I was fortunate in that I was driven here, otherwise I would not have made it. <laughs> so uh, it's an honor to be here to talk to you about some of the research that I've been working on to improve transition in adolescents with inflammatory bowel disease. And this presentation is going to focus on the process that we went through in developing that program and showing some of the preliminary findings that we've had so far because the project is still ongoing. Oh, that's right. That is not my presentation. Okay. So a lot of this, all of this work is funded by my Career Development Award from the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and the research that you will see presented is actually work that's being conducted at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta along with Cincinnati Children's Hospital, so I did want to acknowledge those two institutions as being a pivotal part of this research. So when we think about self-management, and this is a definition of self-management taken from the pediatric self-management model that was published in pediatrics, it's the interaction of health behaviors and related processes. And I highlight interaction in blue because it really <coughs> emphasizes the fact that it's all of these health behaviors, all the things that a patient could potentially be doing in a single day with the related processes that are going on in their life. So you might ask, what are those related processes? Well, let's take Anna, for example. She's a 16-year-old high school student, and this is what Anna's life looks like. Academics play a major role in adolescence, and as a 16-year-old, she's probably looking at taking the PSAT, ACT, getting ready to go to college. So she might be in some advanced placement classes or inter-baccalaureate classes, so that can result in a lot of homework after school. In order to get into a good school, she also has to be very actively involved. So she may be involved in various athletics or perhaps some after-school clubs. So that's going to take a good portion of her time. <coughs> Let's not forget the primary focus of adolescence, which is texting. Um, and the average adolescent sends about 112 text messages per day, with the average, with the female adolescents being the super users of texting, and they send about 150 a day. So that's a lot of thumb exercising right there. <laughs> Friends are also a major part of adolescence, and as they enter adolescence, parents tend to play a more of a remote role, and friends kind of take center place. And sometimes our adolescents will not take their medication because they don't want their friends to know or they don't want their friends to see them. So friends can, in some ways can be helpful in taking meds, but they can also interfere with that process unintentionally. And then the hallmark of adolescence is parent-teen conflict. So for those of you who have teenagers in the room, when you tell them something, I know, I know that they are very good at listening the first time. They say, oh, thank you, mom and dad. Now that you mention it, that is a very reasonable argument that you're making, and I'm gonna go do that right now. So we know, I'm sure many of you have seen the mom in clinic who says she just won't take her medicine, and I'm telling her if she doesn't take this, she's gonna die, and you know, we've seen that, and it doesn't work. And then finally, the independence that comes with adolescence. They're spending more and more time away from the home. Again, that frontal lobe isn't entirely fully developed, so they're not the best decision makers, as evidenced by the recent Tide Pod challenge that's going on. So these are, unfortunately, some of the people that are making these critical healthcare decisions, and that worries me a little bit. 
So when we look at adherence across the board, across populations, we see that children take about 50% of their medications, but adolescents, non -surpri not surprisingly, take only about 25%. So there's a 75% non-adherence rate in adolescents. And this goes across the board, including conditions where it is very, very important that they take their medications, such as transplant or HIV. This would be preaching to the choir that you know that there are numerous consequences to adherence as well. Organ loss, uh, increased viral resistance in HIV, higher H1C and diabetes and increased complications. But there's also a massive economic impact and that's really what speaks to those who make these decisions, including insurance companies. So the recent estimate of the economic impact of adherence is a little bit old, but it's somewhere between 100 and 300 billion dollars annually. So there is a massive impact of our patients not taking their medications, resulting in increased healthcare utilization and other morbidities. Now, we know that adolescents are not very good at taking their medications, but what happens when they become young adults? Spoiler alert, it's not very good. They actually do worse. Um, when they transition to adults, and there was actually a review conducted by Anna Pai and colleagues at Cincinnati Children's Hospital that showed that adherence overall does decline as they make that transition or transfer to the adult care setting. And that is something that is very alarming because at this point, these adolescents and young adults are independent. Mom and dad are no longer there. And they're making these decisions during a very important time of their life that really sets the pathway for their future life course. So let's take ADHD for example. So we know that ADHD is a condition that has problems with inhibition, attention shifting, starting tasks, uh, big problems with working memory, planning and organization, as well as self-monitoring. So I have a seven-year-old with ADHD and I am too ashamed to tell you what his room looks like, but it pretty much captures all of these skills right here. And when you think about, okay, this is a, let's say a freshman student who's going off to college mom and dad are no longer there, and they are now primarily responsible for taking their medications. Well, what does ADHD cause difficulties with? All of these and all of those skills are the things that are exactly required in order to take your medication correctly. We followed a cohort of uh, students at Auburn University, and we put an electronic monitoring cap on their medications. It was very big brothery, so we could track every time they took their medicine. And we saw some very interesting trends. We see that overall, our participants took 50% of their prescribed medications. And up here, you see this lighter blue line. These are our upperclassmen. So these are the people who've been there, done that. They've had to do it on their own for a while. But take a look at our freshmen. First time on their own in the college setting, they're taking about one in three pills that are actually prescribed for them. Now, not surprisingly, they all get better right around midterms, but then, they all tend to decrease as they reach finals. So our qualitative research in this area is showing us that adolescents or freshman students with ADHD have a lot of misperceptions about their own illness. They pick the freshman spring sem or fall semester as a perfect time to stop taking their medications to see if they can do it on their own. Or they will take, uh, make treatment decisions based on the number of classes that they have. So, I only have one class today, so I don't need my pills. Unfortunately, that class might be chemistry, which is one of those classes, it's not basket weaving. You really need to pay attention when you're in chemistry class. And when they're only taking about one in three pills, that creates a real problem. And we see a lot of our freshman students saying in their spring semester, man, I really messed up that fall semester, and now I'm trying to dig myself out so I can get off of academic probation. 
So that is something that's just outside of the traditional chronic uh, illness populations that I'll be focusing on that just illustrates that across the board, this is something any adolescent or young adult who has to take a medic medication will be struggling. So let's move on to transition. So transition is a planned movement from child-centered to adult-oriented healthcare systems. And I highlight the planned movement part because it is something that needs to begin well in advance of the actual transfer to the adult care setting. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that this process begin at the age of 12. Now, in IBD, where the average age of diagnosis is 15, it's a bit harder to do that because they're going through a very truncated transition process, while at the same time trying to deal with all of the emotional parts that come with a very devastating chronic illness. So for them, it's a little bit harder to go through this process because they're doing two major things at the same time. Transfer is the actual handoff from the pediatrics providers to the adult providers. And I emphasize this because a lot of people will use those terms independent or interchangeably, but transfer is actually the procedures that you use to hand them off to the adult care. That could be getting medical records together, writing a summary letter, finding an adult provider, but transition is that process of preparing them for the adult care setting. So that's why our work is really focusing on preparing them, not actually getting them to the adult care setting. So there are a lot of reasons for transition programming. And the first two are that a lot of our adolescents who may not have been expected to live as long as they're living are actually doing so thanks to advances in medicine and all of the wonderful care that you all are providing for them. But we do know that once they leave your capable hands, they have poorer health outcomes. So higher rates of uh, diabetic ketoacidosis and, uh, and diabetes, increased organ loss in transplant. In IBD, double rates of hospitalizations and surgeries once they move to the adult care setting. So we'd want to prevent these outcomes. We don't want the patients that we work with and develop relationships for so long to move to the adult care setting and then not do very well. The other thing, the other great thing about starting this in adolescence is that we give them the opportunity to practice these skills while that safety net is still in place. They still have their mom or their dad, they still have their providers in place. And if they mess up, you're there to help them. And that's an important life lesson for them. We do not want them experimenting and trying things on their own for the first time with their, when they're with an adult provider because adult providers just have very different resources than you have and their appointments are structured very differently as well. So they may not have the time to help that patient pick up or follow up with that patient if they miss their medical appointment. The other thing is that pediatricians in general are not equipped to manage adult issues and I'll give you a few examples. <coughs> So I had a patient come up to me in clinic and he asked me in a very non-direct way, and I'm going to summarize it in a direct way. So if I were to do drugs, which one would be least bad? <laughs> now I pointed out that he probably shouldn't have asked the psychologist that question because <laughs> it's just really not, but I went to go ask. And you know, at that point when we're thinking about patients using drugs and thinking about how that's gonna interact with their medical condition, they may be better suited to move to the adult care setting where the providers experience that more often. We've had other patients show up to the children's hospital with their wife in tow. And at that point, that probably would be another indication that you probably should move on to the adult care setting. Uh, and then we have the issues of fertility and pregnancy. And some physicians may be comfortable dealing with that, but others might not. 
So again, there are numerous reasons why our patients need to move on to the adult care setting so that they can receive the best optimal care that's developmentally tailored to their needs. And then finally, there are many, many differences between pediatric and adult care in terms of expectations, family involvement, multidisciplinary versus interdisciplinary, which we tend to see more in pediatrics, and just the general focus on autonomy in adult care setting as opposed to the supportive environment of pediatrics. Now, I'm gonna show you a video that highlights from a patient perspective how they view the differences or how they anticipate adult care is going to be after leaving your wonderful setting. And this is a bit of an, I say it's a bit of an exaggeration in some ways, but in other ways it really highlights some of the fears that are going through our patients and our parents' heads. Thank you. 
really think you could bring your mummy in here with you? Grow up. I suppose the doctor's there. It should be a little different. Senior Trevor, I see your A1C is not where it should be. You obviously aren't taking good care of yourself. You skip an insulin? Why do I ask? Teenagers always lie anyways. Yeah, you're probably taking drugs too. Whatever. Take your insulin, eat better, exercise more. Stop taking drugs, don't drink, go to school and get a job. Now it's time for your exam. It's true. It's a little different than you So I see that kind of hit home with maybe some of the concerns you've seen your parents, uh, your patients reporting, as well as maybe some of the concerns that you have about where your patients go when they move on. And some of it is a bit dramatized, but I've told our own patients, if you ever experience anything like that, Go somewhere else, please. There are other options, you have choices. So for a lot of our patients and parents, this is what the process feels like for them. They're being ejected from pediatric care and then hopefully they land somewhere nice. And hopefully, as for those of you who've owned goldfish, they don't land outside of the bowl and you know what happens. So the question is, how do we improve this process of transition? How do we create a bridge that makes that movement a bit easier to the adult care setting? And I'm gonna show you the process that we went through in developing our transition program. The first thing we needed to do was figure out where we were. What were our patients' needs? How well were we doing? And when we asked the physicians, how well do you think we're doing? They said, we're doing a really good job. I think our patients are really ready. Uh, yeah, we have a few outliers, but overall we're doing a good job preparing them. And this research was actually based off of a study that, or research, a. Uh, group meeting that was conducted between Cincinnati Children's and the adult hospital across the street. They have the same EMR, but they do not communicate with each other, which makes the, that process a little bit difficult. They decided that in order for a patient to be ready to move to the adult care setting, they would have had to master about 90% of self-management skills. And our providers thought that they were doing pretty well. So when we surveyed about 196 patients and we looked at how well are they doing, we found the following. 6% were meeting that benchmark. So 6% of 16 and up were meeting that benchmark. Now, for those of you who have a 16-year-old, you might say, well, would we expect a 16-year-old to be able to really manage 90% of their healthcare on their own? And I'd say, you know, maybe not. Let's look, let's break it down by legal adult versus not legal adult. And we see among those who are 18 and over, legal adults, they can make life decisions only 7% were managing their health care independently. The good news is that overall, they seem to get better as they age. They do seem to get better, but our benchmark is up there. And if we were to draw a trajectory line through these data and see at what point would our parents be, or our patients be able to meet that threshold, it would be at age 31. So, probably a bit too old to come to pediatrics and get a lollipop and a sticker when you leave. 
And we've heard from a lot of our older patients that it does feel a little bit awkward still coming to a children's hospital. They, they feel weird being there, but they also don't want to leave. Yet when they do leave, they appreciate being acknowledged as an adult and being treated as such and be, being allowed to make decisions. So once we knew where we were, we wanted to figure out what were the challenges. So we conducted focus groups with patients and parents, both pre and post transfer to adult care, as well as pediatric and adult providers to find out what were the challenges that each group was experiencing and what can we do better. And I'm gonna focus on the challenges, but later on when I meet with the fellows this afternoon, we'll be focusing on some of the recommendations that our families provided. So the first thing that they said is that we don't know a whole lot about adult care and that worries us. Parents have said that from their own personal experience, they feel that the adult care setting is more formal and your appointment times are a lot shorter. And they equated that to being that there would be less communication between the patient and the provider. Therefore, the quality of the care would also reduce. And this is something that we may inadvertently communicate to our patients when we are hesitant, when we are a little bit nervous about making that process, you know, that transfer occur, when we keep pushing it off, we're in some ways communicating to our patients that maybe there is something to be afraid of. Maybe that's something that we do need to hold off for as long as possible. But they were very concerned about this less quality care and that uh, the second they moved on to the adult care setting, the adult doctors would try to switch their medications, put them on a new regimen when everything was working really well and really didn't need to change. The other theme that came up across all groups was that parents were so heavily involved in care that that created some problems in helping our adolescents de develop uh, some independence. So for example, one parent said, it's not that I don't want him to grow up and assume responsibility for it, but it scares me to let go of that control. We're dealing with high levels of fear on behalf of the parents. And then another parent said, whose, uh, whose son was already away at college, I'm starting to feel like a helicopter mom, but honestly, I do every, I mean, he's away at school, so he takes his own medicine and stuff, but he's at X university and we live 20 minutes away. So I do accompany him to appointments. I make the appointments. We do most of it, like 85%. So again, this youth is in uh, college, and that's an error. It's actually a pre-transfer parent. They hadn't moved yet. But they're doing most of it. They call their son when it's to make sure he's awake to make it in time for his infusion appointments. They pick him up. They bring him there. It is just across the street from his dorm room, but they are there making sure he goes because a lot of them are afraid to lose that control. And as we saw in our ADHD study that a lot of adolescents choose this time to see what happens if they don't take their medication or as we know the absence of symptoms is not a motivation to continue taking your medicine and that is the case with this population our clinicians agree with parents they don't even know the number to call and schedule an appointment if what do i do if i don't feel well oh i tell my mom my mom figures out what i'm supposed to do and as a college professor i receive phone calls from parents to let me know that their child is not going to attend my class that day. And it becomes a very awkward conversation that I do have with them about independence. But at, some, at a certain point, we do need to teach our parents how to let go and really demonstrate to adolescents that the ball is in your court. This is your health. This is your life. You need to take responsibility for it. We're not gonna throw you out in the deep end, but we're gonna gradually help you build up to that independence. The other thing that's really stood out to us is that you all are very wonderful people 
and they really, really like you. And that makes it even harder for them to move on to the adult care setting. So in some ways, you have to be less likable. <laughs> you have to be like that adult doctor uh, because that makes that departure so much harder. And a patient captured this perfectly when he said, if a di doctor diagnoses you, treats you for six years, it's kind of like they're the parents of your illness. It's really hard just to, you know, all the stuff that he just remembers about you. Sometimes it's just hard to switch immediately over to new parents. And that is the level of attachment that our adolescents feel but won't directly communicate to you. But their parents certainly will when they're giving you hugs. And even thinking about that video, um, you, you give hugs to your patients. You console them. I have never received a hug from an adult doctor. <laughs> I'm still waiting, but it just hasn't happened. So this is a really difficult thing to lose you and then move to someone where they just don't have that bond. And then finally, in finances and insurance, and this is something I think we all need to do a better job of educating our patients because we found that our parents tried to shield their adolescents from insurance issues as much as they could. They didn't want their adolescents to worry. But then the adolescents were worried. They were worried about it, but they didn't have enough information because their parents weren't giving it to them. So they were panicking. They were really panicking without that extra information. One of our patients says, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it because I feel like if I go to adult care, will my parents still be able to pay for it? Will I have to chip in now? I mean, what kind of money do I have to put into this now that I'm in adult care? He was really worried about the finances and these medications are very expensive. Or as one of our moms said, my, mom, my son knows that I'm stressed out financially and for him to say, I don't need to go to my appointment, mom. It's a $40 copay. You don't have it right now. The thing is, what is he going to do when he's on his own? And we do see patients spacing out their pills to make them last a little longer. So if we don't educate our patients about the ins and outs of insurance, they're going to be making many, many misinformed decisions. And we want to prevent that and provide that education where they're still in pediatrics so they're not thrown into the adult world and don't understand what a deductible is or what a copay is or how important it is to obtain employment that provides a solid <coughs> insurance plan. So now we know how we're doing. We're not doing very well. We know what the challenges are. So the next step for us was to see what everyone else was doing across the country. And we conducted a national survey of adult of pediatric IBD providers in the US. And we found that in general, in this study, there were a number of things that people were doing well. For the most part, people had some sort of practice in place regarding transition and, and transfer. Transition, they said, usually for them started around 16, 17. Transfer happened anywhere between 18 and 25. So there was a lot of variability across institutions as well as within institutions. For the most part, multiple disciplines were involved in the process. Physicians and nurses were the ones who were leading most of the efforts, but there were also some social workers and psychologists. And 75% were assessing transition readiness in some way, whether that be a formalized questionnaire, such as a transition readiness assessment questionnaire, or the UNC transition scale, or just asking them, how well do you think you're doing? But there were also some downsides. Very few, less than half, knew about the published transition guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then of those 50%, only 4% of those uh, had a transition plan that was based entirely off of those guidelines. Only 14.2% had a written transition policy. And when you don't have a written policy, you're gonna see a lot of variability across providers. 
And one of the things our patients care about very deeply is the issue of fairness. It's not fair that you're making me leave at age 18, but my friend Joey gets to stay until he's 23. And when we have that variability, it can create a lot of resentment amongst our families. And then almost everyone said that there was some challenge that they were experiencing in creating this type of programming, primarily focused on lack of time, lack of staff, and just that patient-parent resistance, you know, that they didn't want to go, they didn't want to leave, and it was hard to make them leave the setting. So next up, assemble a team. We have a lot of information. I'm still trying to decide which person I am in there. Um, I'm not sure if any of them meet my personality. Maybe the Hulk. Um, but we had our data, so now we assembled a team. And this was an advisory board of pediatric and adult providers, pre- and post-transfer patients, uh, as well as their parents. And these individuals met with me uh, quarterly for, an eight, for about a year on their own time, completely volunteer, because they were so motivated to improve this process and they wanted to feel like they were contributing to making the lives better for others who would come behind them. So in this team, we created all the materials for our transition program. All of the challenges that came up in our focus groups, we threw those things to the team and we asked them, how can we fix this? How can we address this? For example, um, one of the things that came up was you know, at Children's, you give us a list of adult doctors and their names, but that's just a phone book entry. We want to know more than that. You're just giving us a name and you want me to pick a parent based on how their name sounds? And our providers thought that we were doing a really good job by giving them that information, and our patients and families hated it. So we asked them, well, what would you like to know? What do you want to know about a provider before, we meet, before you meet them? And one of our uh, patients said, well, can we speed date them? That was a very awkward request for me to pass on, so we did not do that, but we, we varied it a little. But we ended up creating provider profiles. So this is an example of a provider down in Atlanta, and they wanted to know a number of things about them, what their specialty is. Do they specialize in IBD or are they a general GI? Where do they train? What is their emphasis? What is their treatment philosophy? These are things that you can't generally find on a website. Are there special features of their clinic? And in this case, uh, this doctor speaks Arabic. They wanted to know these things about their providers, and we created this for every single provider in the surrounding area. Now, our uh, patients also said that, you know, you're talking about transfer, but what is that? I mean, do I have physical medical records? Do they, I mean, you just kind of come in with that computer. Like, how do I get that over to the adult care setting? How do I actually transfer? So we made our providers sit down and say, okay, you will need to get a patient to transfer to the adult care setting. Let's create a checklist with some timelines. And this is what our providers created. So one year in advance, confirm your date. And check step by step all the things that you need to do in advance, including what you're going to bring to your first adult care appointment. And that really operationalized for our patients what this process really looks like. And the reason you all don't have this sli these slides is that it is an ongoing intervention study. So I'm presenting some preliminary results here. When we finally got together and put everything together, we ended up creating something called the Self-Management Transition Enhancement Program, or STEP, and it took a really long time to come up with that acronym, but I've heard the acronyms are key when you need grant funding. So this is what we came up with. This is an intervention that's delivered entirely outside of the clinical setting, because our patients, for the most part, they, they want something delivered in the clinical setting, but then they also said, but we're already spending two hours there. So I don't know if we need another person to come in and make us spend an entire day there. So our program is delivered via a group format, 
as well as one-on-one -on -one coaching phone calls via, with a transition coach. Our, pro, our group format focuses on a number of topics, including what are the differences between pediatric and adult care? What are the things that you need to know about that setting? And what are the positives of moving to the adult care setting? We talk about how you manage IBD in college and when you're on the job because transitions are happening in all parts of their lives, not just their medical care. So we talk about how do you get academic accommodations? What kind of accommodations might you want to know about? How does the American with Disabilities Act protect you when you're on the job? What is FMLA? So we give them that information so they know that in advance and they can prepare as they're going off to college. We have a panel discussion with patients and parents who've already been there and gone through that process because our families felt isolated. They wanted to hear from those who had actually been there, done that. So these individuals come and share their experiences with families. And then we separate our teenagers from their parents. A lot of our adult providers said that most of our teenagers don't know where their disease is located. They lack basic information about Crohn's and colitis. So my colleague, Laura Mackner at Nationwide Children's gave me her IBD Jeopardy and they get to play IBD Jeopardy during that time. And then the parents meet with me to talk about transferring responsibility to your child. And this is less of a didactic session, it's more of a support group, I've discovered, that it's not uncommon for the tissues to make their rounds because the parents finally have an opportunity to share their concerns with other parents who are there as well. And the great thing about it is that they get to share ideas that they've tried. So it's a lot of information sharing, a lot of emotional support. And then finally, we have our adult providers come in and meet them and interact with our patients. So because of the fact that we have our adult providers come over and we have people coming from outside, this is an intervention that's delivered on a Saturday morning. We have to do it on a Saturday to make sure that everyone can come, but it gives them an opportunity to meet some of the doctors that they're seeing on their profiles and interact with them and get a sense of who they might want in the future. Now our individual topics, these happen once a month with a coach, a transition coach, and they say coach because psychologist is too stigmatizing. Um, the first one is talking about IBD education. And in this session, we use the IBD passport and we help them create a miniature version of their own medical history. And anything that they do not know is assigned for homework as things that they need to ask at their next clinical visit. We also, at the beginning of the study, give them a knowledge questionnaire and everything that they got wrong is focused on in this session. So these sessions are very individually tailored. The next session is focusing on adherence and identifying the barriers that they, they indicated at the beginning of the study and coming up with a very strategic plan to help them overcome those barriers. And for that, we use a lot of problem-solving based uh, work there. Finally, we talk about transition and coming up with an individualized plan. In our study, we use a transition readiness uh, track the tradition readiness assessment questionnaire and uh, we love acronyms in psychology and we look at what are they currently doing and how can we help them make the next step what is that next task that we can help them take responsibility for and we come up with a plan and then finally we focus on self-advocacy all of those concerns that our patients indicated they were worried about what if i call the doctor the adult doctor and they tell me sorry there's no room for you we're booked do you just say, okay, thank you, and hang up and say, oh well? Or how do you handle that situation? What happens when your new doctor wants to change your medications and you don't necessarily agree? And we role play those situations with our teenagers. So our preliminary findings, and they are very preliminary because our Atlanta group just started on Saturday, another Atlanta 
group. We currently have 23 patients that we've run through this study, 15 at Cincinnati, eight at Atlanta, but again, another cohort is going on right now. And for the most part, pretty typical in IBD, <coughs> primarily Crohn's, primarily white or Caucasian, and we're kind of focusing in on that 17-year-old average, but we have patients anywhere from 15 to 22 who've been in the study. And we're looking at a number of things, and I say these are preliminary findings because I just analyzed them last week and we don't have all the data from all the other outcome measures in. But we're looking at transition readiness, so how much are they improving throughout the course of this five-month intervention, and we're also looking at how many self-management skills are they taking responsibility for? Are they being fully responsible for? So when we look at transition readiness, we see that there's about a 20% increase from pre to post in terms of how much they're being ready for the adult care setting. And on average, our patients are assuming full responsibility for three additional self-management tasks. So mom and dad are no longer involved, they're doing it entirely on their own. In terms of a program acceptability and feasibility, we've had 100% study retention. And the great thing about that, I think it's because it's delivered via telehealth, so we catch them when they're at home, we can reschedule, it's very flexible. It's not that if they're not available that day, they miss it. We always catch them. We ask patients to uh, rate the study in terms of its helpfulness in preparing them for the adult care setting, as well as the convenience of the intervention. And we also ask them about different formats. So we're offering a group individualized format. What would you think if it was a group only format? What would you think if it was an individual format? And these are our um, ratings in terms of group plus individual, they seem to like it. Our adolescents show a stronger parents for individualized only, but that is pretty typical of adolescents. Social interaction is hard um, for them, especially when you're talking about medical issues. And then for the most part, they really didn't feel too strongly about having a group only. They really liked the group and the individualized nature of the program. In terms of helpfulness and convenience, we were rated pretty high in terms of these features. So I think that overall we're doing a good job and we're getting some good feedback on additional things that we can include in our intervention study. So now you're ready to go. You're ready to make changes. Well, let's talk about some practical things you can start doing in your clinics. And that comes directly from the handout that accompanied the slides. This is a systematic review that we conducted from the literature. It's actually, I think, currently in online advanced access where we surveyed all pediatric chronic illness populations and we saw what were the barriers that were encountered and then how can we address them. So the populations that had the most research, not surprisingly, were HIV, sickle cell, diabetes, and inflammatory bowel disease. One of the biggest barriers was the relationship issue. How do I form relationships with new doctors and how do I let go of the ones that I've had before? And on your handout, you'll see the actual research studies that have documented these strategies as being helpful. So some, some studies have done joint pediatric and adult clinic issues where the patient is seen by both providers at the same time or the providers are alternating and that probably works better for insurance issues and who can claim that visit. The other option is just to provide them with opportunities to interact with the adult providers. So in our case, we had a bit of an open house, but you could also have them interview providers or perhaps create video entries of providers where they're answering certain questions. And in our case, I think that's what we're gonna to move to in the future to move past the directory approach. The next barrier that came up was the beliefs and expectations about the adult healthcare setting, and all of those were captured in the video. So a few strategies there would be having them interact with adult providers prior to transfer, and then coming up with a structured transition plan using templates to help them realize that at every clinic visit, we're going to be talking about this. 
and we're, this is gonna be something we're not gonna avoid. And our expectation is that you will be ready to leave by X date. And then just connecting them with patients and peers who've been there and done that. That is also very helpful and in some ways can be more powerful than anything that you might individually tell them. And then offer tours of the adult clinic. So at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, they have a nurse practitioner who actually accompanies the patient to their first adult care visit. But that is something that they acknowledge that they are paying for entirely because it is not something that could be funded externally. But that's one way that they've dealt with that. Skills efficacy, again, start early. Start as early as you can, 12 and up. And then you need to educate the parents on how to transition responsibility because a lot of them don't do it because they honestly don't know how. And if you can teach them how to do that, uh, and there is some excellent research in transplant that has shown that if you educate parents on how to transition responsibility, they will do it. And then encourage independent clinic visits. So for those patients and parents that are almost in mesh, you need to surgically separate them and have the adolescent in alone in clinic. And then there's some really interesting research that's being done by Wang and colleagues with regard to using technology to teach them uh, IBD education and self-management. So there are things that we can give in the clinic or outside of the clinic setting to help them improve. And then finally, the fourth barrier, and this is where we will end, is just the issue of access and insurance. This is one of the barriers that's probably the hardest to fix, the hardest to address, because so much of it is outside of our hands. You know, the first thing you need to do is meet those adult providers. They want you to not just recommend a doctor because they're there, they want you to say, Oh, I know Dr. Smith. We go to this conference together. We definitely, he's a great person, would fit well with your personality. And a lot of times we don't know that about our adult colleagues. So if we can create that relationship, that's gonna make us more confident in recommending physicians to our patients. I am a big fan of having a transition coordinator in clinics. So this could be someone that, whose sole job is focused on transition efforts and helping our patients make that transfer to the adult care setting. At Cincinnati Children's, it's a social worker that we have employed. She started out at a half-time position, but we have about 500 patients, so it became very obvious that she needed to go to full-time, and even then, I still don't think one person is enough for a 500-patient load. And then, uh, same, similarly, some people will employ a transition navigator on the adult side to help them make that move to the other setting. And then the last part, which is probably the hardest, is this issue about educating families about insurance. And if any of you are familiar with gottransition.com, they have a podcast on insurance that's directly focused on patients and parents. And then self-advocacy, which I know can be really hard. It's not something that we're trained to do, but if we don't advocate to the insurance panels, to our representatives, to those who make these important healthcare decisions, we're not gonna get these services paid for, which then makes it a lot harder to get internal support for that. So those are some of the major things that you can do to address the biggest barriers that are reported in the literature. But again, later on today, I'm gonna to talk about some practical strategies that our patients and parents have recommended. So at this point, I'd like to thank you for coming to this presentation and open it up for questions.